Welcome to The Last Week on Earth with the Global Arena Research Institute with your hosts, Michael Coran and myself, Odessa Primus. Today's podcast with Shmuel Bar, the founder and director of Israeli company Interview, who maps social sentiment to mitigate security threats and understand the international environment and its drivers, brings you an update on Putin's war against Ukraine. We discuss how cognitive dissonance is driving Putin's strategy, Ukraine's code names for the Russian army, the possibility of nuclear weapons involvement, and more. Please enjoy and share. First question relates to the podcast that we recorded uh, a few weeks ago now. Um, my question is, in what you said in that podcast, where were you correct in your predictions and where were you wrong? And the most important question is, why do you think that was? What surprised you in general in the in the you know past six weeks of the uh, Russian aggression towards Ukraine? First of all, uh, I've always uh, preached to myself and to others that um, when we talk about rationality, then we always have to take into account that rationality is a system which is applied to a data set. So uh, if we are uh, saying Putin is rational or irrational, what happens now is that everybody who uh, made a mistake in assessing Putin said, oh, he'll be deterred by this and this and this. He wasn't deterred. Oh, he's irrational. You know, and that's an easy way out. That's a way to cop out of uh, conceptual errors. Now, even though I've always uh, said that we have to think about six impossible things before breakfast and we have to extrapolate to second order and third order, here there was something which I didn't uh, take into account, which was we don't know what the data set that Putin got was. Okay? We don't know what it was. And therefore, right. uh, when he was applying his rationality to it, if we take away the fact that we knew that the Ukrainian army was stronger than people thought, we knew that uh, the Russian army is corrupt and, uh, and uh, rotten to the core. We knew that the Russian army, which has developed a reserve system which allows people to pay other people to go and train for them. And then when they are called up, they actually have no military experience. In other words, all of those little pieces of information were known, but they weren't necessarily factored into a, a larger picture, which then uh, you can build on. So let's say Putin didn't know that. Now, why didn't he know that? Because in any autocratic regime, uh, if you are the leader and you're an autocratic leader and you give so many billions of rubles to the army, nobody's going to come and say, well, you know, only 10% actually goes to the army. The rest of it goes into bribes and to corruption. And, to, you know, nobody's going to say that to him. Now, as long as you can create the facade of the army operating, etc. So when the president comes to an exercise, he watches them and there's a lot of pyrotechnics then he has, there's no way whatsoever that he can really know the situation of the army. Okay. Could yeah. I, um, so is it, is there a possibility that Putin didn't have contingency plans for a possible, you know, partial or complete failure of at least gaining like Kiev and, yeah. and installing government? There's no doubt. Look, in Russian doctrine, if you just go back to Soviet doctrine, Soviet, a doctrine which is based on uh, we are right and we are powerful and we have, we have resilience and 
we are going to go down to the end. In other words, there is no concept of courses of action, contingency planning, um, uh, the whole, the, the uh, in Western military and uh, intelligence thinking, you build a plan and then you say, we have something called uh, incidents and reactions. Okay, what could happen? Then how do we react to that? This is a form of planning which actually doesn't exist in the Russian doctrine. The Russian doctrine, if something bad happens, you know, shit happens. Well, first of all, it's a conspiracy of shit because it's the Western conspiracies, et cetera, et cetera, which only means that we have to be even more indomitable. We have to be all even more concentrated on the goal and continue. Now, when you come from a Western country and you think, well, okay, uh, is there such a thing as an intolerant level of uh, casualties? For me, not for the other side. Is there such a thing of the type of fighting that I'm not willing, I'm not willing to completely level a country or something like that? In other words, where you say, I cannot achieve the goal without uh, leveling the country, okay? So if uh, America went into Iraq and they said, well, we can't level Baghdad, so we are constrained, and therefore we have const uh, restricted options. R the Russian doctrine doesn't have anything like that. It goes back to the, their own self-image from World War II. Look at Stalingrad. Did you need a contingency planning in, in planning Stalingrad? No, it was to stand and stand and stand until you defeat the, the Germans. So uh, this is a problem. So in terms of what we discussed, uh, I just looked at the date. It was the February 3rd that we published our last podcast. What happened within the Russian government? What happened with Putin in terms of determining what he has to continue with? What are his options and what level of possibility it, there is that he would succeed in any of those actions? Yeah. Uh, first of all, we now know that uh, Putin received a report from the FSB now, he, he, he poured enormous amounts of money into a mechanism within the FSB, which uh, its whole job was to create this um, support system within uh, the former Soviet Union, former Soviet uh, satellites, etc. Now, when you pour enormous billions into such a mechanism, and the people who are supposed to give you reporting on how well that mechanism is working are the people who are in charge of that mechanism. Okay, they built it, they're doing it, they're getting the money, and now they have to report. So what we do know now, uh, there have been quite a lot of intelligence leaks from the Americans and the British, that he's received reporting from the FSB that basically this is going to be an Anschluss. In other words, this isn't this isn't Poland 1939. It's not France. It's not. It's it's it basically it's Vienna 1938, right? You walk in, they line the roads with flowers and flowers at you, etc. Because he was he was told that 85 percent of the Ukrainians are just waiting to reunite with Mother Russia. So the price from his point of view was minimal. There wasn't going to be any fighting against those Nazis that he's talking about. The Ukrainians want him. The sanctions would be limited because even if they impose sanctions, but when the whole world sees it's over, then the whole world will also uh, retreat from the sanctions. So he'll have a, a bit of pain with the sanctions, but nothing more than that. 
So in his assessment of the situation, based on his information, then basically it's a win-win. Now, had, I think that had we known that, this, that the picture, the intelligence picture he was receiving was so radically different to the real picture, both in, in their own, the net assessment, in other words, my capabilities versus their capabilities, et cetera, and the scenarios, then we would have said, well, sure, it's a win-win situation. Uh, let's go for it. Now, the other thing is what actually happened. Uh, Biden appeared twice or three times during that period. And in every appearance, he said at least twice or three times, we will not fight Russia. We will not fight the Russian army. We will not send forces to Ukraine. Uh, we will defend the borders of NATO. Now, if you are Putin or Lavrov uh, or anybody else, at the, you know, uh, then you say, well, um, okay, so we're not invading NATO. We'd better do this fast because they said, yes, we will uh, defend the borders of NATO. So if, so if Ukraine becomes part of the borders of NATO, then we'll, we'll have lost the opportunity forever, right? So in a way, uh, this combination, we will not fight Russia, we will not send forces to Ukraine, but on the other hand, we will defend NATO, uh, actually put a time frame on uh, uh, Putin's activities, on Putin's decision-making. And uh, do you think, just, just a side question, um, do you think that the Russian intelligence community or the FSB in particular, uh, did they really get it wrong or they just were trying to please Putin with their assessment? You know, uh, the fascinating uh, works done, uh, you know, on the mentality of autocratic regimes and especially the mentality in the Soviet era and, uh, you know, the captive mind where you actually juggle two sets of worldviews at the same time. And... Uh, I think that today, I mean, even for people in the Czech Republic who say, yeah, we were once under that regime, but I think in uh, so many years after that, it's really hard for people really to understand what it means when uh, you know something, but you're supposed to sort of uh, submerge what you know and hold a completely different belief, which isn't based on what you know. You see what I mean? If we can uh, elaborate a little bit. <laughs> yeah, okay. Listen, listen. Cognitive dissonance, okay? It's a problem of cognitive dissonance. You go to the grocery in the Soviet Union and there's no bread. But you read in Pravda that there's a lot of bread. You talk to your neighbor. He's afraid that there's a KGB officer. in the, So he says, sure, I bought a lot of bread and I was in the grocery. There was a lot of bread. Everywhere they tell you it's a lot of bread. You begin to doubt what you know, okay? Right, right. Uh, because everybody, I mean, maybe I'm not seeing it right. You know, it's like the emperor's new clothes, you know? I mean, they, uh, when that legend, the emperor's new clothes, they didn't call it cognitive dissonance, but it is a form of cognitive dissonance. You know, only the little boy doesn't know that he's supposed to say that the emperor's clothes are beautiful, so he says he's naked. Right, right, and uh, and so so. Well, well the, I guess the why I was asking the question is that so far it appears that the Western intelligence service, and including Polish, 
was superior to the Russian one, to the Russians one, um, because they got most of the things right and they're really helping uh, the Ukrainian forces um, on the field that's tactical. now. But that's tactical. tactical. Well, that's yeah, tactical. but even before, but even before, but no, but the, but the question is uh, whether the, uh, I guess the, the question is whether the Russian intelligence service, um, um, you know, in reality got the picture right, but only was unable um, uh, to communicate that because of this, and I, because of this sort of element that you just spoke about, or they also got the intelligence wrong. I think it's. I think that the entire structure, the entire uh, mechanism of a regime like that, is subordinated to the groupthink and to uh, to the line, to the party line. In other words, I don't think that anything comes up. It's not as if it comes up to the head of the FSB and he says, "The hell with it! I'm not going to tell the president that this is uh, going to be a fiasco." No, I'm going to tell him it's okay. No, it doesn't work that way. Right. Uh, at every single level, um, I'll tell you a story. Um, I heard it from a person who's been who was working in the American uh, Defense Department for many years during the Cold War. Uh, at the beginning of the Cold War, uh, the Americans had their Minutemen uh, systems, the silos, and um, the Russians always wondered about, do the Americans plan a first strike? The Americans didn't declare no first strike, but the Americans did say, well, basically they're not, going, they're not preparing, and they declared that their Minutemen system is basically for a second strike capability. Now, the Russians did mathematical calculations of the yield of their nuclear weapons. The chief mathematician on the project made a mistake. Due to the mistake, everybody under them, uh, under him, uh, um, modified their equations in order to fit the mistake that the chief mathematician had made. Okay, as a result, the calculation of the yield of the Russian weapons gradually grew in scale until they said, "Well, look, what we know about our weapons, about the yield of our weapons, the Americans probably know." We know that if we use that many weapons on that uh, uh, deployment of the American nuclear weapons, we will destroy them all, which means that these are not intended to be a second strike capability, which means that these are all part of a first strike doctrine that the Americans aren't declaring. Then they told the, and this is by the way in documents which were taken after the fall of the Soviet Union and were analyzed by the Americans. if um, if we take that into account, then the Russian leadership received information that, look, this Cold War is hotter than we thought, because this Cold War means that they could, under certain circumstances, decide on a second strike, on a, on a first strike, which means that we have to be even more careful and we have to be far more, uh, uh, you know, attentive in order not to allow things to escalate. Now, after, many, after the Cold War, uh, it, they did some sort of research, which I read, that many of the cases where the Americans thought they were sending deterrent messages to the Soviet Union, the deterrent messages never actually got there through the filters of the uh, Soviet military and Soviet intelligence. 
And the reason for the deterrence that they had attributed to their deterrent messages was because of the basic underlying belief by the Soviets that the Americans could launch a first strike. Okay? And I don't think, you know, plus ça change, ça reste les mêmes choses. As much as it changes, it remains the same. When, when you said that, that the help is more tactical, uh, uh, and I, I now on the field, I can, I can uh, very much agree with that. Uh, what, you know, given that now the situation that the, the Russian army is obviously trying to regroup to, you know, uh, cannibalize its own units and move uh, back to the perhaps more realistic plan from the start, to to take over Donbas, uh, what what will be the biggest challenge now for Ukraine and for the Western <clears throat> for the Western allies? Well, first of all, um, you know the the Americans say it's not over until the fat lady sings. The Russian regime has created a frenzy of denazification of Ukraine. The website which is most uh, identified and people who are identified with Putin are saying things like um, the Nazification of Ukraine has been so deep that only by uh, re-Slavization and re-Russification uh, of the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian masses, and after only after a uh, complete destruction of the Ukrainian, de-industrialization of Ukraine, uh, can the denazification process uh, take place? And even then it will be after a period of generations, of a generation. So uh, the things that they're saying there, I mean, I even saw one case where they actually said that the final solution for the Ukrainian problem will only be after a generation. Personally, as an Israeli, the words final solution sort of give me a um, <laughs> shivers. Unacceptable, totally unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. But so I don't think, I think, yes, they, they realize that they are stuck. They were looking for a way to have some sort of tactical ceasefire. I don't think that um, this is going to be, okay, so now they're going to regroup in Donbass and say, okay, let's have a peace agreement. You give us Donbass, we'll stop, you know, no. I think that what they want to do is to have a tactical ceasefire, which will be with maintaining the level of, uh, of fighting so that you can always restart, reignite the conflict uh, at will when you feel that you have the capability. Now, the Russian reserve system, which they revamped in 2021, is also broken because uh, the whole system is based on filling uh, up the regular units. And uh, most of the reserves that they can call up have actually never really trained. They're not even weekend soldiers. They've never trained. And so now certainly if you want to create new units and send them in, um, well, you have to have uh, squad training and uh, platoon training and company training and battalion training. And this takes about half a year at least, even for the most rudimentary units. So they know that the, the, the Russian army knows that within less than half a year, they really can't amass the type of forces. And that meanwhile, the Ukrainian army is going to continue to uh, reorganize. So I think that what they're looking for is a tactical ceasefire. Now, the problem is that in order to maintain that tactical ceasefire, you have to have some level of constant conflict, you know, like a war of attrition. 
So there's going to be a war of attrition in which are, at one point or another, the Ukrainians are going to have to get supplies from Poland, Slovakia, from the frontline states. Uh, the Russians have already declared that if these countries give supplies or support the Ukraine, the Nazis, you know, then uh, this will be considered aggression against Russia. Now, well, what happens if uh, the Ukrainian military or resistance goes back and forth from Poland or Slovakia or Romania or Hungary or Moldova, etc.? And, well, what are the Russians going to do? Are they going to say, okay, we're going to ignore it because that's NATO? Or are we going to try to deter them by doing all sorts of localized attacks inside the borders of those countries, on the borders of those countries? Now, when that happens, then the big question is, well, what about NATO? In other words, is one Russian attack on a supply depot inside Poland considered Article 5, two, one in Poland and one in Slovakia, one in Poland and one in Hungary? I mean, what, what triggers Article 5? Or does anything trigger Article 5? If once that doesn't happen, then the Russians, who have a goal of actually wearing down, eroding the commitment of NATO, so everybody will say that NATO is a paper tiger, they could adopt a, a, a tactic of doing these small attacks where NATO doesn't respond, and this will actually in some way intimidate the NATO countries, which used to be East, you know, East European NATO countries, and say, hey, you went and joined NATO, but you know, look Look what it's worth. So you'd better take into account that we are your neighbors and NATO isn't going to help you. So from the point of view of, um, of influence operations, that would be a very important influence operation for them. We spoke about it last time that, that, that uh, you, you are a CEO and founder of an, an extremely interesting company, Interview. And as, as far as, as you can share it, Uh, what are the findings? What is what is it that is coming either from the Ukraine media or social media or, or Russian media or social yeah. media space that you feel is worth exploring and mentioning? Here? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, public opinion in uh, well, let's first of all let's take Russia. Uh, Russia has taken down Twitter and Facebook, etc. The only thing that's working there is. Uh, Telegram. For some reason, the Russian intelligence doesn't want to close down Telegram, probably because they're covering it. It's worth more intelligence-wise than it is in disruption. Um, so uh, Russia is basically, whether people really feel inside that they, are, they support Putin or not, but they are expressing themselves very clearly. It's Again, it's a cognitive dissonance. Maybe I wouldn't want to support him, but everybody's supporting him. I'm not going to expose myself. So the Russian public opinion, and I'm sure that the AFSB, the SVR, are monitoring. Well, they say, yes, they're all behind Putin. Okay? And Putin can leverage that within the elite. Look, the people are behind me. You better be behind me too. Okay? Uh, so I don't think there's any... Uh, I think that we can extrapolate from that and say that for the, for the period ahead given the level of sanctions, given the fact that Nord Stream 1 hasn't been blocked, given the fact that just every other day uh, Biden announces that there's another daughter of Putin whose bank account is going to be frozen, you know, and that's supposed to, well, that's going to hurt him. Until now, you didn't touch my daughter's bank accounts, you know. Uh, but 
so from the point of view of, uh, of the regime, uh, there isn't going to be any sub, any gradual um, effect of war uh, fatigue and uh, what the hell did Putin do to us, okay? That's not going to happen at least in the next half year because the sanctions aren't going to be that much, okay? So I think that that's important. The other side of it is Ukraine. We're monitoring the Ukraine uh, actually on a tactical basis as well, but also their sentiment, etc. There is no doubt that Ukraine is in the throes of a sense of uh, commitment to a war of independence. In other words, you see it among the expat Ukrainians, you see it inside Ukraine, you see that they support Zelensky. They support Zelensky as long as Zelensky is opposing Russians, is not making concessions. The sentiment among the Ukrainians is no concessions. And the more, the more violence that Russia uh, uh, applies to them, then the stronger their position is that, you know, no deal with the Russians, no deal with Putin. Now, what that means is that since Ukraine has a constitution and they have laws, then even if Zelensky were to want to make concessions, even in Donbass, certainly, you know, Mariupol and Odessa and things like that, certainly de, uh, demilitarization or even changing the law, which says that they are going to uh, uh, aspire to join NATO or the EU, all of that would actually in the Ukrainian law calls for a, um, uh, for a plebiscite. And there's no way that Zelensky, no matter what agreement he reaches with Putin, if he were to reach such an agreement, which I doubt, because Putin doesn't want an agreement, he wants an attrition, but he wouldn't be able to get it through uh, public support in, in Ukraine. So I think that if we take those two elements that we're identifying in the public opinion and we're identifying very, very strong trends and we extrapolate from the trends, these sort of trends don't change overnight, right? And do you see some sort of development in the Ukrainian um, uh, public opinion over the past six weeks, uh, either in, in the way of you know, greater resilience or more greater being great, more tired or, you know, being ready more to give up um, anything that had been uh, that has been changing in the past six weeks. No, if I look, for example, at the um, uh, the statements of, uh, you know, expressions of Ukrainian patriotism and resistance and uh, and hatred, the visceral hatred of Russia. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, they have all sorts of code names. So the, my favorite is that all of the Russian soldiers who come from European Russia, you know, they're white, they're, you know, they're called orcs, you know, from Lord of the Rings. And all of the ones from uh, the Asian Russia are called Borats <laughs> from the <laughs> movie Borat, <laughs> you know, um, and a, uh, they are their animosity is so great is so great and i think uh what we see there is at least in uh, up to now and i i look at this data every day you know and i don't see a, any attrition of the or erosion of the uh ukrainian 
resistance sentiment. I think that these, uh, whether the Russians, the fact that they feel that they are defeating an empire, they feel that they, well, they're paying dearly, but they are standing up to an empire. And I think that, uh, you know something, I think that uh, if you go back to, I don't know, you ask your parents or somebody, what people felt in the spring of Prague, you know? Look at us, we're a little country, look what we're doing, you know? That sort of thing. Uh, and you take that and you, am you amplify it because the level of sacrifice is a, com is a factor which amplifies the satisfaction if you have succeeded despite the sacrifice to achieve something. So, I mean, there's all sorts of complex uh, elements here, but it's uh, human nature. What would you think uh, in the future progress of the conflict currently? Are the things, not the six impossible things, but um, what are the things that are very unlikely in terms of what you know or what you think to happen? Because there's a lot of in terms of, uh, I think a lot of our listeners would probably be interested to hear about your opinion in terms of nuclear capabilities, yeah. as well as other countries' involvement, future involvement in the conflict. So how likely are these things? And what arguments would you say that can deter people from fearing those elements? Uh, certain things are almost inevitable. In other words, the, um, the United States didn't fail to deter Russia. It didn't try to deter Russia. I mean, we have to understand that. There was no real effort to deter Russia because if you say he, he wants to invade Ukraine because he wants to be Vladimir the Great and uh, for him it's the reunification of the Russian Empire and this is the benefit. The cost is going to be sanctions because I'm not threatening him with military action or anything like that. In terms of cost-benefit, it's clear that there was no attempt to deter. And by the way, Biden himself at the NATO um, uh, press conference, when some young journalists asked him, uh, uh, what, what do you have to say about the fact that you didn't succeed in deterring uh, Putin? So he said, no, we didn't try to deter Putin. We did not intend to deter to Putin. We wanted to tell him that there will be a price for his actions. So... Uh, so what this means is for all of the countries who now bask under the American umbrella, and I'm talking about the Middle East, where they now have flocked to Israel because they say, well, Israel, whereas if America didn't go to help Ukraine, which is a European country, uh, you know, they're closer to them ethnically, then certainly they won't come to help us against Iran, right? So the only ones who really have uh, an account with Iran who will help us are the Israelis, okay? Secondly, uh, the Ukrainians gave up nuclear weapons. That's why this could happen, which means that if the Iranians get closer to nuclear weapons, we don't believe the American agreements, which means that we also have to acquire nuclear weapons. You take it to North Korea. Look how North Korea now is uh, flexing its muscles because they say the Americans are a paper tiger. I also want to show that the Americans are a paper tiger. So what do the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Taiwanese understand from that? Uh, so I think that we are having where we can expect a sort of destabilization of the non-proliferation regime. 
and a further weakening of the expectation that the United States or NATO will intervene. Now, I think that this will exacerbate and escalate the moment we have a situation where Russia does attack within a NATO country. The moment Russia attacks within a NATO country, the entire myth of we will defend the borders of NATO just comes tumbling down. And, and that's, and that could actually, now I think that one possibility will be a sort of disintegration of NATO into sub-NATOs, where the East European frontline states will try to create some sort of uh, security organization of their own, uh, just to make, to, to face the situation with separate uh, agreements with NATO because you don't want to be um, um, bound by the, um, uh, by the NATO consensus, okay? Sorry, so, so do you think it's likely or how possible that, that Putin would go further than the borders of Ukraine? Uh, I think that he wants to, uh, he will want to, first of all, he will, if there is constant support of the Ukrainians um, by the borderline states, he he cannot just let them go back and forth and be supplied and not take action. So he will try to do things at the border, across the border. In other words, not a whole invasion of Poland or something like that, but something that they that he will feel the waters and he'll try to see, okay, how far can I go? without precipitating conflict with NATO, the further I can go without precipitating conflict with NATO, I am also getting the added value of uh, proving that NATO is a paper tiger, okay? Uh, but in the long run, in the long run, what we're seeing is the, first of all, the de-Europeization of Russia, um, the disintegration of NATO deterrence, uh, a further decline or fading of the American uh, uh, role in uh, in uh, defense of other countries, um, uh, of the image of the United States as a deterrent. And I think that this will have an effect in the Middle East, in uh, East Asia. Uh, you know, um, uh, I, I met with a senior Japanese uh, official uh, ministerial level in the area of defense. And um, I asked him, um, are you satisfied with the American nuclear umbrella? And it was really interesting what he said to me. He said, well, you know, an umbrella, sometimes it rains and sometimes your umbrella doesn't open. It's, it's uh, broken. So it's always good to have another umbrella in your briefcase. In other words, he didn't answer me, but he did answer me that if you think that your umbrella may be broken, in other words, the American nuclear umbrella, you really should think seriously about carrying another umbrella. Right. right. Uh, if we leave this particular angle, um, and you mentioned uh, East Asia now, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a huge issue. So, so let, let's, let's, let's try to focus on, on the fundamental things but uh, there's a lot of uh, talks about China about Chinese assistance about Chinese stance but my, my question is rather broader um, because there's a lot of structural conditions now that point point at uh, strong possibility 
that there will be further decoupling and deglobalization uh, following these events. Um, do you think this this could be a breaking point in globalization as we know it, and we could really face a a stark deglobalization or or the sort of economic rationality? <laughs> um, uh, not not economic rationality, but 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 you know that th there will be a strong will to continue with the current framework of international uh, economy and international trade so that uh, china would not take the clues as to you know be careful as to who you're dependent on and uh, things like that because that could uh, be a breaking point i I, th i think that uh, one of the problems is equating the east-west relations china west relations with the russia west relations Uh, they're absolutely not the same. I mean, Russia, of course, they get a lot from uh, the gas, the oil, etc., etc. Uh, but uh, basically, most of the Russians do not actually, uh, they don't purchase Western goods, they don't have the money to do it, okay? Um, so if you aren't selling, uh, I don't know, Ben and Jerry in, uh, in Sverdlovsk, Well, they never had Ben and Jerry in Svedlovsk or, you know, I mean, okay, so everybody makes a big thing about uh, the McDonald's in uh, Moscow is closed. Oh, my God, you know. Um, so that's something different. China lives off its export in enormous amounts of areas to the West, okay? So globalization is the essence of the existence of the Chinese economy. And anything that I think that, and the Chinese are very, very clear about it, you know, that they, uh, they certainly they're not going to risk their economy and their well-being for Russia. The Chinese have done all sorts of interesting so-called public opinion polls, which they've been so kind as to leak, which is interesting. One of them shows that when you ask Chinese what country poses the greatest uh, Um, security threat to China, 85% of the Chinese say Russia, not America. This, I believe, is very much so. But what I guess is that now that China sees that there is also a huge cost of its, economy, uh, of its economy dependence on its relations with the West and how easy After all, I mean, easy with a huge, you know, uh, quotation marks, but um, uh, how quick it was to essentially isolate huge parts of Russian economy and uh, it, this would hurt China much more. So what, I'm, uh, what I was rather thinking, whether the, uh, the more autonomistic uh, economic thinking uh, could start prevailing i'm not speaking about the next year or two years but but uh, that i can i can imagine uh, ways of uh, of china of trying to hedge against this sort of possibility uh, but, but for that you're talking about a china almost adopting a chuche you know north korean chuche uh, system the north koreans believe in self-reliance chuche or what the iranians call resistance economy you know uh North Korea does it because they have no choice, because if you open up, then you risk, you know, what happened in uh, Russia, in the Soviet Union, etc. Um, Iran, because they were under sanctions, okay? Um, the, uh, the ability of China to adopt uh, 
anything more than slight modifications in their economy, let's say, to increase uh, the portion of the national product within, you know, I mean, uh, the, the, the national wealth, uh, they don't really have very many margins to do that because in the end, uh, if they stop exporting to the West, if they, in other words, globalization is a two-way street, you know, you stop, ex you, you, you uh, try to cut yourself off from the West, the West will try to cut themselves off from you, you are losing money, you have to maintain a, um, uh, a growth rate which is commensurate with your population, if you don't do that, then you're risking the stability of the country. And all of that is not worth uh, some sort of ideology of uh, self-sufficiency. In Russia, it's different because Putin actually wants to uh, return Russia to a, an isolationist uh, um, approach to the world. In other words, he does want to deglobalize. He doesn't like the idea that Russians want to have McDonald's and Burger King. And, uh, you know, he doesn't like that. He doesn't want it. Uh, so I think uh, we're talking about two different, completely different cases. I don't see that happen. And by the way, the Chinese are always already making all sorts of noises like um, uh, China will not support um, aggression against any country. China will, we're against sanctions. We think everything should be diplomatic, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the Chinese have been very careful. They, uh, you know, if you take, if you uh, compare them, let's say with Iran and Syria, who are outwardly supporting the entire Russian narrative, the Chinese are not supporting the Russian narrative. The only thing they're saying, they're taking parts of the narrative, for example, that it's the West's fault because they insisted on uh, Ukraine joining NATO, okay? But they're saying that because it fits into their own narrative that the West is interfering in East Asia and therefore uh, it's the sins of the West which are causing these things. Uh, but to go beyond that, uh, it just doesn't, uh, and there isn't any leadership in China which is like Putin. Xi Jinping is part of an autocratic elite. You see, they're still the sort like the Soviet Union was where you have a mm. politburo, mm -hmm. okay? Putin doesn't have a politburo. Mm. There's no such thing, there's no such thing, let's say, like in the, uh, you know, okay, so you have Brezhnev and so everybody sits together and they, uh, you know, uh, one of Brezhnev's heart attacks happened during a, a debate, a, a yelling debate within the Politburo, you know. Uh, there's no such thing about you know, right. Putin, right. you know. So, but in, in China, you have a Politburo, they debate, they talk. Of course, you have all sorts of, uh, you know, power politics, etc. But there is no such case where uh, a leader is going to take action which is going to uh, severely damage the economy and everybody's going to say amen. Mm. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that, that was, that's very important uh, point of view, especially uh, the fact that Russian leadership or Putin doesn't like uh, globalization. I think this is an argument that doesn't, um, yeah, that, that we do not hear that often. If possible, what would be the three things to watch now in the coming weeks that, uh, you know, that could undermine or that could really 
uh, change the dynamics of the conflict between uh, Russia and Ukraine? Um, okay, the first thing I believe would be a... Uh, I don't think that a, a Russian chemical uh, use of chemical weapons would make any difference to NATO. It didn't make any difference in uh, Syria. It's not going to, you know, uh, they cut off another bank account of another oligarch. Um, uh, I don't think that uh, the, uh, I, I don't think that the Russians will use a technical nuclear weapon at this stage. Uh, certainly not because they, in any case, they want to maintain some sort of tactical attrition, war of attrition, and nuclear weapons are not uh, uh, are not uh, the sort of thing that you use in a tactical <laughs> a, um, war of attrition. Um, a, the one thing is that Putin does want to reach some sort of triumph or victory for 9th of May. He's instructed his uh, uh, military uh, that he wants to hold, he wants victory by 9th of May. Now the question is, what can consti constitute victory? Uh, I think that a Russian defeat in Donbass during the next few weeks could bring him to the point where he will just uh, lash out and just do mass uh, leveling, uh, leveling of uh, Ukrainian cities at a much, much greater scale than he's doing now. Um, and this could precipitate a reaction in certain Western countries to say, the hell with it, we are going to give some sort of air defense to Ukraine. Okay? Air defense to Ukraine means uh, uh, intercepting Russian missiles and Russian aircraft from neighboring countries. And this could, of course, result in escalation and in broadening the conflict. And it could happen just, it could happen actually uh, paradoxically because of the Ukrainian successes in Eastern Ukraine. Okay. Um, another possibility for a change, uh, a shift, uh, would be a, um, a, a situation uh, in, uh, in Moscow where uh, somebody will suggest to Putin to change course and uh, instability within the Kremlin could have a lot of effects. In other words, everybody's hoping, okay, we're putting pressure on the elite, on the, on the Siloviki, on the, you know, but they don't take into account the pressure on the Siloviki in creating uh, some sort of destabilization of the Russian elite uh, will bring Putin to take extreme action, you know? And so uh, again, in other words, so I have to prove now that I can achieve victory at all costs. I think that the main uh, tipping point is any situation where Putin will feel the pressure and say, it's now or never, I have to achieve victory now, and it doesn't matter what the cost is. And that is where the tactical nuclear weapons come in, which I think that the Americans made a big mistake with that they didn't declare DEFCON just, you know, they don't even have to do it, but just declare that they're raising their um, uh, nuclear alert when the Russians said that they're raising theirs. There has to be a tit for tat. Right. Well, 
Thank you so much for your insights. And I encourage everyone to uh, look at your company interview and, and how you work. Thank you Let's so much. For the best. You know, let me just tell you, when we're looking at bad times, uh, many years ago, it was the height of the Intifada in uh, Israel. And my son was in the army and my daughter, and I was uh, in diplomatic posting in uh, Europe. And a friend of ours was a professor who had, uh, he had fought in the British army in World War II and then in the Haganah in uh, Israel, and then the IDF in three wars. And he was an old uh, professor. And he said to us, I don't understand you young people, why you get depressed so easily. When I was a young man, Hitler had occupied all of Europe. Rommel was beating Montgomery in the Western desert. We were preparing for a last stand on the Carmel Mountain in Israel. Six million Jews were killed and tens of millions of others. Then the Americans and the Russians were going to blow up the world with the nuclear weapons. And we had the Cuban missile crisis. And ever since then, he said, everything's been looking up. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good positive note at the ending. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. The Global Arena Research Institute specializes in high-level research and analysis using big data and AI. In our podcasts, we bring you experts from various fields for fascinating and useful discussions. Until next time, have a great day.